Oh, yeah, there's, there are so many reasons that I could define why it is that I love you all. Um, but the fact that you're all here on a morning like this, I mean, if we were in the city, no one would show up at church, but not you guys. You show up through all of the, the snow, which is just awesome. So good morning again. Um, I am Bill, if you're new here, and uh, thanks for being, being uh, here with us. And uh, in a moment, we're going to turn to God's Word. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12, um, starting at verse 32. We're going to kind of overlap what Chiron read so perfectly for us earlier. But I've got a couple quick things. If your name is... All right. If your name is... The Bowders, the Millers, the Adams, Clayton Annette Adams... Larry Beaumont, the Beards, and the Lynches. That means if you don't see Rachel, which where's Rachel? Our prayer family, her and Rachel. Rachel, where are you? Okay, she's in the very back, so you can't see her. She is the photographer. Um, If you don't see her after the service, then we pull an old family photo off of the interweb and put that into the church directory. Um, So... And um, if you're new and this is your first week here and you want to be in our directory, we'd love to have you in our directory. Um, Just go see Rachel, get a picture, and fill out a communication card, and you can be in the directory. But we're going to print out those new directories. They're almost ready to go. Those are our last holdouts. So we want to give you one last chance before we do the printing. All right, so there's that. Rachel, I said I was going to throw this to you, but you're in the back corner. I can't, I would like hit Benny right in the head if I did throw that. So um, I'm going to give this to, there you go. There's your phone. Um, Okay, one more thing before we jump into Mark 12. You see it, I've got it in my pocket as a visual reminder. Um, We are having a missions weekend coming up in a couple weeks. This is the outline. I went over it last week. Hopefully, did every one of you get this when you came in? No, if, if you didn't get this, Please grab them on your way out. So first off, um, I do a lot of different conferences. I've been to conferences all through my life. A lot of times missions conferences are put on by mega churches. And a lot of the the promotional material that they use, these mega churches that have all these people and all these resources, don't make a flyer half as good as the one that Heather Beard made for us. So Heather, awesome. Thank you for that. And, uh, of course, all the details and whatnot came from our awesome missions committee. But this gives you the layout for the weekend. It's kind of a little more detailed than that. But we just want as many of you as possible to participate in as many of these events as possible for the missions weekend. Because it will not only benefit our missionaries and encourage them to see you there. It will also give you a bigger picture of what God is doing around the world. And you'll see it firsthand through our missionaries or secondhand or however that would work. So um, an important time. A very important time for our church. So anyway, I'm going to leave that right there so it's a reminder to all of us the whole time we talk. Okay, there is probably more. Actually, I got a bunch more, but if you missed out on our worship night last Sunday night, you missed out. It was awesome. We're going to have another one coming up in a couple weeks or a couple months. Um, there are other things. Sweetheart breakfast yesterday, our first exercise class yesterday. Um, so good stuff. Lots of fun stuff going on. But um, that being said... Um, we're going to turn to Mark chapter 12, and I just want to, I want to uh, pray one more time as we open the word. Heavenly Father, I just uh, thank you again. Thank you again for the beauty of this day, the, the snow that's coming down, the reminder that though our sins were as scarlet, you came and you uh, 
remove them. Your son washed us as white as snow. And I thank you for that blessing and that gift. And uh, as we open your word today, I pray for every person in here that they would hear from you. They would hear what you want to speak to them today. And, and Father, I pray that you would reveal to each one of us specifically areas that we have compromised our faith for, uh, for our love of culture, uh, that you would reveal blind spots to us uh, this morning uh, through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 12, verses 32 through 40. If you remember last week, we had to stop a little bit early. Um, and, and so we're going to kind of pick up at 32 and, and we'll overlap the, the conclusion of a conversation Jesus had with a scribe and then see where he picks up another conversation with some more scribes and Pharisees. So that's kind of the picture. And, and, and last week what we talked about was there was a sincere scribe. And this scribe, he came to Jesus with a question, and it's the most important question that he probably could have asked. He says, what's the greatest commandment? What's the greatest thing of all? And Jesus was, um, I could, you could tell by his response, he was thankful to have a sincere scribe in front of him because he had been dealing with so many critical spirits, so many... Um, overly self-righteous religious and political leaders. So he answers him very genuinely, and he, he says, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. There is nothing more important than that. As a matter of fact, all of the, the law and the prophets hang upon those two things. And so as we come, we, we see that. Um, Really, it came down to two, two main points last week. Um, one was love God with everything in you. And the second one was to love your neighbor as yourself. Just a very foundational message for us as individuals and us as a church. That we really are called to love where we live. We, we are called to love God in the everyday. And it's kind of the, you know, the, the vertical relationship. And we're called to love on the horizontal level every day. Those that God has put around us. And today, we're going we're gonna to look at three blind spots that Jesus sees and that are revealed in an interaction that he has with some self-righteous scribes and self-righteous Pharisees. And so in order, since we're going to talk about blind spots, I want to define what a blind spot is because there's a number of different kinds of definitions. One definition is a blind spot is the small circular area at the back of the retina where the optic nerve enters the eyeball and which is devoid of rods and cones and is not sensitive to light also called the optic disc. Here's a picture of it. It's kind of gross, frankly. <laughs> there it is back there. That is the blind spot um, physiologically in our bodies, that little spot there. I don't really understand that definition, and it's just to know that's kind of where the term came from. So that term also has been known to mean this, a portion of a field that cannot be seen or inspected with available equipment, the most common understanding of it in our culture is like in driving blind spots you have that yellow car there is in the blind spot of this driver that's why you're taught as a driver's ed student you always have to head check you can't rely just on your mirrors it's also why they give those little tiny round bubbly mirrors to put on the sides of your car so you can see those blind spot areas and not get yourself in trouble and and so for the, the sake of our definition today as we talk about blind spots we're actually kind of giving it this definition Areas of weakness or sin in a person's life that they are not aware of or they don't care of. The, the theological term is a sin of commission. A sin of commission is, is a, a sin that someone commits and they do it either 
intentionally or unintentionally. Sometimes there's sins of commission where you can commit a sin and you don't realize that it, it hurts the heart of God. And, and so that's one of the things that we're going to deal with today. These particular scribes and Pharisees were committing some significant sins of commission. And it's a little unsure whether or not they knew they were committing those sins or not. But Jesus helps to point these blind spots out to them. And um, I, a question I kind of ask all of us is, if, if someone was to come up to you and say, what is your blind spot based on this definition? Do you, do you have a blind spot? It would be hard to actually answer that because the whole idea is that if it's a blind spot, how do I know it's a blind spot? They're like, well, what, is, what, is the, what is the issue? How do I know that? Um, for those of you who are married, you probably know what your blind spots are. But, but still... Um, Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Um, now, I came across this quote. It was an unnamed quote, but I thought it was very appropriate. Uh, the most common blind spot is believing that others have them and you do not. The most common blind spot is believing that others have them and you do not. And so here we come. We come down to this spot. Um, we get back now to our text in verse 32. This is with the scribe that's well-meaning. And he says this to Jesus. He says, Jesus, you're right. You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all of the heart and with all of the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This scribe that is in this honest conversation with Jesus is showing that he understands his Bible. He should. That's what his job was. His job was to make copies of, he was the modern day or the then day Xerox machine. He was also the one that would teach the Bible classes for better lack of terminology. Back then he was also one that acted as a lawyer to settle disputes between people. Um, and, and he had the right idea. And he was quoting he was quoting 1 Samuel 5, 15, 22, that says to obey is better than to sacrifice. And Jesus responds to this man in verse 34, and he says this, And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. This is in the, in the original language, an emphatic statement. He was, he was close to the kingdom of God, but he wasn't yet quite there. He he was good, but in the terms of this consideration, he wasn't good enough. He was not far, and yet he still was far away. He was on his way, but he had not yet arrived to receive Jesus as the only way. And so here's where we kind of see the first blind spot that pops out. And if you have notes, you can follow along there. Um, the first blind plot is an incomplete view of salvation. You could, if you're writing notes, you could put slash and you could put not just an incomplete, but an erroneous view of salvation. Because really that's what was going on here. They had an erroneous or a wrong view of what salvation is. The people that he's about to interact with and I think a lot about today. Because being, being there is not the same thing as being close to being there. And Jesus wanted them to see that even though he was close, there was still a chasm between him and the kingdom. He was religious, but he had not yet entered into a saving relationship with the Savior. He was quite literally just a few feet away from the king of the kingdom, and yet he was still a long ways off. He was not far, but still not being far is far enough. And, and the point here is that knowing the right answers, 
uh, is not the way to get to heaven. That's not how a person gets to heaven, by knowing the right answers. The only way to get to heaven is by accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, repenting of your sins, accepting his sacrifice for you on the cross. To be close to the kingdom of God is not the same thing as being in the kingdom of God. You can be close but still not be someone that's converted. You can know a lot about religious stuff. You can know a lot about the kingdom of God um, and still not be a part of it. That means orthodox doctrine, and that's what he was dealing with here. In many cases, these scribes and Pharisees had very good understanding of the Old Testament. They had good orthodox teaching, orthodox doctrine, and yet you can know all the orthodox doctrine and you can still go to hell. And Jesus wanted to make sure that they understood this. You can be like the scribe, you can copy the scriptures every day and still not be saved by the Savior. Sorry about that noise. Anything I need to do different, James? Just, okay. Um, point here is you can be an inch from heaven and yet you can still go to hell. And that's the, the, the sheer reality last, um, that, that he's dealing with here with this man. And we'll, we'll get to this man just a little bit more. Last week, and I tread very gently on this topic. I, I brought it up last week, and I tread very sensitively and gently on this topic again. I'm going to talk about it twice this morning. And I, I want all of you to know um, my sensitivity to this issue and a lot of prayer is going into this particular issue, but I want to bring it up publicly as, as a point of importance. And that is, um, I asked last week for you to share with me this past week um, what your experiences are in dealing with the old apostolic Lutherans, um, that faith, um, dealing with that in, in, our, in our town. And uh, I really appreciate the, the input that I got. Um, I'll just be honest with you. It was all over the board from the, the highest of adoration and respect and only good experiences to some really difficult, hard experiences. And, and I just want to say that um, that came out of our text because Jesus says the most important thing is to love God with everything and to love your neighbor as yourself. And... The old apostolics are our neighbors. We are called to love them. What that love looks like, that's what I don't know. Um, one of the things that I'm really trying to figure out and would love more feedback from all of you on is just what some of the core fundamental beliefs are amongst that church, that people group. Uh, because I've heard now from about a dozen different people that what they teach is that if you're not a part of their church, that you're going to hell. And I don't know, I have not spoken to the actual leaders of their, their church. I don't even know who they are. If you know those things, I would love it if you could connect me with them. Um, but if that is true, if, and that's a big if, I say that sensitively, um, but it came from so many different angles, if that is true, that is an erroneous view of salvation. There is nothing in the Bible that says attending a church is a means of salvation. There is nothing in the scripture that teaches that. And whether it's the old apostolic Lutheran or whether it's Yakult Community Church, I guarantee you there are people in that building that are not saved, aren't part of the kingdom of God, just like there are people that are in this building that aren't, that have not committed themselves to the Savior. Because 
a proper understanding of salvation, the Bible teaches us. It's very simple. It's very, very clear. And, and here's a couple passages that, that highlight this. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must save. I know that uh, I, all of our Awanas, Taven and Chiron and, and some of our Noah and some of our other boys in, in our Awana group, that's one of their memory verses. Uh, because it's important, because Jesus is the only way. Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's a really scary statistic that I came across this week that said that 52% of Protestant Christians, evangelical Christians, that's a, what does that actually mean? I don't know. But let's just say that's non-mainline tradition. That's people that would feel comfortable in our church. 52% of them say that salvation comes through faith in Christ alone and nothing else. 48% say Salvation comes through faith in Christ and by giving your best. There couldn't be anything more clear in Scripture that we don't earn our salvation. There's nothing that you or I can do that's good enough to earn our way to heaven. The only thing we're called to do is to receive the free gift of grace from from God, which is His Son, Jesus Christ. And once we've done that, we're, we're given the Savior, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, and then we walk. We walk in that. We walk in the Spirit. We grow in grace. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's nothing we do. It's a gift of God. So kind of back to the big question of of one of the blind spots that these guys had. They had an erroneous view of salvation. And I just want to be really clear that hopefully here in this room, as you you sit here week after week, we understand that, that it's Jesus that paid it all. It's not Jesus and our own energies and our own efforts. Um, so, so important and so clear. Um, now, that being said, I'll come back to the apost- old apostolic shortly, but again, I just want to challenge you as a church to pray into this, to pray, for, to pray for these individuals in our community. I'd like to know more, and I, I don't know what God would like and have us do as it relates to this difficult, difficult situation that we, we find ourselves in. So um, anyway, whatever that looks like, I, I come at that very sensitively. Now, I love how this interaction with this scribe kind of comes to an end. It says, and after that, no one else dared to ask him any more questions. This is a double negative, meaning they absolutely, positively, no one was going to ask him any more questions, and it's obvious why. The obvious reason why no one was going to ask him questions is is very much the same reason why a lot of people don't search out God's heart today. It's because they don't want to hear what he has to say. They don't want to know the truth. They don't want to know the real answers. And and I wonder if today, as, as we look at this, if there, there are some here that, that would fall into the category of what Jesus said with this man, that you're not far from the kingdom. He's, he, he loves you. He's pleased with you. He recognizes that you've got some good understanding, but you've yet to commit your heart and your life and to follow him wholeheartedly. I wonder if maybe that is you today. And what's great about that is if it is you, today can be the very day in which you walk in that. There's no special handshake. There's, there's no special rules to this. It's just giving your heart to Christ. You can do it sitting there right now. As a matter of fact, I'm going to stop and pray. 
Um, if you are there right now and you've never accepted Christ in your life um, and you'd like to do that, I'm going to pray. You can, you can pray along in your own way. Father, I, just, I pray for every person that's in here today. And if we do anything on a regular basis at our church, your church, it would be to, to share the good news of Christ. Father, I pray that those that feel the burden and the weight of the, the, the world around them and the weight of sin would, would release that to you, um, that they would trust you with, with uh, all, of, all of their heart, that they would trust you to take away their sin and they would walk with you and follow you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We don't know what happened to the scribe in this story. Uh, we don't know, no indication anywhere in Scripture that he actually put his faith in Christ to follow him. And, and really, that would be sad. That would be sad to be so close to the Savior and yet not to be part of his kingdom, part of his world. We must move from just having good feelings and good thoughts about religion and thinking we're good people to trusting the Savior. Which leads to our next blind spot, which we're going to read in verses 35 to 37. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. Second blind spot here that we see is first the incomplete or erroneous view of salvation and then an incomplete view of the scriptures. An incomplete view of the scriptures. Um, The scribes believed that the Messiah was going to be, they believed that he was the son of David, which was correct. They, They had correct belief. It unfortunately was just incorrect. That's where their beliefs thought. They, they taught that the Messiah that was talked about in the Old Testament was going to come in political power, come to conquer their enemies physically and rule and give them the promised prominence as a people of God so that they could wipe out the rest of their enemies around them. But Jesus instead brings out an ex- and, and does an exposition of this text. He's quoting simply Psalms 110, verse 1. That's, what this, that's why it's in those paraphrases there. He's quoting the Old Testament scriptures. And, and in this, he reveals the inadequacy of their belief. I'm going to switch over now, James. Is that okay to the handheld? So you killed a oh, perfect. All right. It's going to take me an hour to figure out how to edit that on the podcast, those two things together. But we'll get it. Uh, So Jesus is doing an exposition of Psalms 110, and uh, and he reveals the inadequacy of their belief. Now, Psalms 110, just so you know, I don't want... This is exciting stuff. Uh, Hopefully it's exciting to many of you. But uh, all throughout the Old Testament, there are certain passages that are considered messianic passages. These are passages that are pointing towards Jesus as the Savior. And in this case, this is one of those passages that was always known as a messianic psalm. Well, Jesus here, 
he, in verse 1, he proves that the Messiah could not merely be a man. He's not merely a man that's just coming in political power to to take care of all of their problems. He's actually pointing out to him that, that David referred to this coming Messiah as his Lord. So what Jesus is doing is he's using the scriptures here that they taught on a regular daily basis that they memorized, that they were, um, they were the authorities on. He's using the scriptures to point out to them that he is not just coming as a man, that this is indeed him and he is God in the flesh. Uh, the, the term that came up in our growth group last week, it's actually a theological term. It's called a hypostatic union. I just think that's cool. Um, you, take, you take two natures of, of Jesus, his heavenly nature and his, his earthly nature, and they, they come together in the hypostatic union. Just fun stuff. Anyway, it doesn't have anything to do with this. But the point is, the point is what they're doing there is Jesus is pointing out that he is not just a, a man, but he is also, he's also God come in the flesh. So what did these, many of these scribes and Pharisees, what did they decide? What did they do? They went back, and they do what a lot of people do today. They choose to believe something different. And they just say, well, that actually didn't mean what I thought it meant. And so instead, he argued that, well, that's not really David, it's Abraham or Melchizedek or an intertestamental Jewish leader, Judas Maccabees. And and liberal scholars today who deny Christ's deity and the infallibility of Scripture have argued that David was simply mistaken in rejecting the revealed truth that David himself called the Messiah, his Lord, because of the revelation of the Holy Spirit. So people just basically twist the text to say something that it absolutely doesn't say. And and Jesus is saying, that's not what it's about. Well, here's the big problem that we're coming to with, with the, the scribes as it relates to the Bible of their day, is their big problem is that their earthly dreams made them gloss right over the obvious spiritual meaning of the scriptures that they vainly taught on a daily basis. They had these 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 dreams of what a Messiah was supposed to be in their mind and they glossed over the reality that the Messiah was right in front of them and he had come to do so much more um, in in individuals' lives and the life of of God's people. And we can say, like, what does this have to do with us today? I mean, this is the scribes and the Pharisees' problems back then. Uh, They were the ones that never faced the the messianic implications of Psalm 110 because they were dominated by these political and and nationalistic dreams of, of human deliverance. But, again, their earthly, their earthly thoughts and desires made them gloss over the obvious spiritual truth and the meaning of the scripture here. So what does that have to do with us? Well, historically, historically, um, the account of Christianity has shown that the church has easily fallen captive over its history to cultural pressures. Um, I want to read from an, an old book briefly, and this is uh, from a guy named Sir Arthur Bryant. He wrote, uh, it's called The English Saga, and in a chapter entitled Dark Satanic Mills. I'm going to read this, not too long, and then hopefully you'll understand the point of what I'm trying to say. All right, so it says, um, He describes the unbelievable abuse that came to children in the early part of the 19th century in England. Children of seven or eight years old were in coal mines, and it was a universal issue. In some pits, they began work at still an earlier age. A case was even recorded, a child of three. 
Some were employed as what are called trappers, others for pushing or drawing coal trucks along the pit tunnels. A trapper who operated the ventilation doors on which the safety of the mines depended would often spend as many as 16 hours a day crouching in solitude in a small dark hole. The Factories Inquiry Commission, which I get the idea, it's kind of like L&I today, but the Factory Inquiry Commission of 1833 showed that many manufacturers were still employing children of six and seven and that the hours of labor were sometimes as high as 16 hours a day. Flogging was regarded as a regular part of the process of production. Harassed parents with their eye on the family budget accepted all of this as inevitable and even desirable. Many fathers acted as subcontractors for the employment of their own children, and in 1833, the cotton mills enjoyed, employed about 60,000 adult males, 65,000 adult females, and 84,000 young peoples, of which half were boys and girls under the age of 14. Here's the point. All of this while all of this was run by upstanding employers and good churchmen and clergy, expanded their businesses and their abuses, and the church at the time did nothing about it. It was the established order of things. So basically the idea there if you didn't pick up on it, this was the norm back then to, to, to use kids. Actually, it sounded kind of like my childhood growing up yours. I don't know. Uh, I had a pretty strict dad, but 16 hours a day crouched in a coal mine. I don't know. Um, but this was the norm. This was, this was a, not just, this was not just celebrated. This was the norm amongst Christian people back then. And, and thank goodness, thank goodness uh, we, we have some brave Christians that finally stepped up and cried out against some of the injustices. But it makes me wonder um, if the Bible is made captive today in our culture, if we, if we don't see certain truths in the scriptures because our, our culture has us captive. And I think, I think it does. For example, millions, millions of Christians today are absolutely obsessed with materialism. They're obsessed with it to the point that they are no different than the society around them. It's easy for me to say they. And I wonder sometimes, you know, I've visited third world countries and I think, well, it's maybe me too. Um, earlier this week, I'm wrestling with this um, this text, and I got in a conversation with Jess, our youth pastor, who was up here, and, and uh, uh, I, I told him, I go, man, I, I just, I, I, I got this message down, I know how to preach it, but I just, the, really the hope and the goal is that we would, as people, be able to have eyes to see our own personal blind spots, and have eyes to see the blind spots of, of the church of today, whether it's our church in here or the church as a whole, and, and uh, Jess's response was great. He, he said this, he says, if God showed us all of our blind spots at once, we would explode. <laughs> and, and I think that's probably true. Uh, I think that's, that's, that's probably very true. true. Um, and, and, and that's probably true, but I bet someday future believers, maybe even us, are going to look back on this generation, and they're going to see in disbelief some of the things in which we were captivated by culture. We didn't live biblically and scripturally because we got so used to different patterns down here on, on this world, on this earth as, as it goes, and we overlooked things just like we overlooked for, uh, it was only 100 years ago that slavery was, was abolished. You know, and Christian people, in many cases, horribly, yeah, it was the culture of the day, but many of them were horribly abused of slaves and and they justified it somehow because 
culture said it was okay. Um, here's the point, and then we'll move on to the third one. Uh, we need and we must read God's word with fresh first century eyes, escaping the bondage of our culture and allowing the word of God and its first century intent to penetrate into our hearts. Read God's word in such a way that it's real to us and not an ancient book, which, which leads to our third and final blind spot that points up here, and that is this, an incomplete view of service. An incomplete view of service. Let's read. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in the flowing robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. There was obviously a divine rage at this point as Jesus described uh, the religious leadership. And during Jesus' time, most scribes lived off what would be considered uh, today like government subsidies because it was, it was against the law for them to, to earn money for what they did. So what scribes would do is there was some kind of a, a tipping type system. They would get noble, it was considered noble to give a scribe a gift. And so what they would do is they would not do certain services, weddings, funerals, counseling, um, classes, without an expectation of, or an ex, um, uh, what's the word, uh, extor- extortation? Is that, that's not a word. You know what I'm saying. From people. And, and the people in which they most often would do this were the people uh, in chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, which we're going to read about in, next week. So we'll see a little bit more of the picture there. So they would take advantage of this. And very often it was people with limited means who would support these these scribes and these Pharisees. And it just was sickening to Jesus. You can hear it and you can read it. So he, he, he warned. He warned the people there to watch out. I could even see it. Let's just say it's a room like this. And let's say here's all the, up here there's all these guys with the flowing robes and the fanciness. And he says to a room of all of us, he just says, beware of these guys because these guys don't got it. These guys, their idea of religion is is not the way that God has designed it and, and intended it. So um, now, as we as we wrap up, I have three questions that, that I think are key in going away um, from this as we look at this text. And and the first one, I got it backwards in your notes. I apologize. So I, I've flipped around in the keynote here, but um, the second one, which is the first one, is why do we serve? Why do we serve God? Do we like having a position of power, a position of influence? I would say, do we like wearing fancy pinstripe suits and ties to church, but we're in Yakult, so that just doesn't happen. But, but, but the, the practical application is, is the same. Is What is it that motivates us to serve the Lord? Is it so we can have great influence? Is it so that other people can look at us with, with a sense of awe? Or is it because we have a pure heart? And you know what? Serving God is just sometimes not a very glamorous thing. As a matter of fact, there might be some of you in here that you've got an area of service that you're a part of, and sometimes it's just not very, it's not very, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it, it's, it's an average responsibility. It's not a very celebrated role, and you might be kind of tired in it. Well, I just say, well, one, maybe you're not operating your gift, but two, Serving God, doesn't matter what the role is, how awesome is that? How great is that? 
you know, I, I really do hope that you are taking Jess, Jess's call to pray about serving with students. There's a great need. He, he said that they're kind of like, it's kind of like, a, I think, a tornado when they're in here. It's not, it is a tornado when they're in here. And it's awesome. It is awesome to have this place full of all of that life and energy and uh, just, just wear your body armor. But, but um, you know, in, in times like that, it might be a little bit fatiguing, but serving God, there's nothing greater than that. But what's our motivation? Uh, and, and it doesn't matter if you're the preacher, it doesn't matter if you're a youth worker, or a Sunday school teacher, a growth group leader, nursery worker, usher, whatever. Um, I just really hope for all of us and trust that we're serving God with a pure heart and uh, we're not doing it for our own personal gain, our own motives, um, patting our own egos. All right, so moving on to the second number one here. What place does God's word have in our lives? What place, do we know it? Do we read it? Or are we being bound by the culture around us so that the word is not going deep within our hearts? Do we want the Bible to really do its work in us? This is a call, a call for us to, to seek the clarity of the scriptures um, and to be really to be painfully biblical in our Christianity. Painfully biblical. Because there's a lot of non-biblical Christianity out there today. And so it's, it's our call to be very, very biblical in how we follow Christ. And then thirdly, and by far the most important of all of these, and we've already alluded to a number of different times, what do you think about the Christ What do you think about the Christ in all of the other synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew and Luke? Uh, We'll just use Matthew 22, 42. Jesus brought this up, and he said the the question, he used this question to get this whole conversation going. The point is, if if you answer the question, you know, what do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Christ? Now, I know that I'm done with notes, and everybody's like, oh, that's the last fill in the blank. All right, check out. I need you not to check out. (laughs) See, I sit where you're at. I know these things. Um, Hang with me another 60 seconds. The point is, um, we all have to answer that question. Who is the Christ? Jesus wanted to know that. And and if if you answer only that he was the son of David, which that was their way of saying it, but you could say Jesus was a great guy. He was a a prophet. He was a great guy, and that's it. Then you're unfortunately eternally in error. If you answer that, yes, he's the son of David and he is the Lord in the flesh, then you are not far from the kingdom of God. That's good, but you're not far. But if you believe this in your heart, that he's not only God in the flesh, but also God and your Savior and Lord, then you have eternal life. That's the difference between being not just not far, but being in. Not being far, but being in. And so that's the challenge, always, every day. And, and I think for, for many of us who have been followers of Jesus our whole life, it's always good to be reminded. It's always good to be reminded how important it is us, for us to receive the gospel into our life, even today. Uh, to be reminded of the, the joy of our salvation. I'm going to have the worship team come up. And as we close out in prayer, it's obviously snowing. Uh, and I just encourage you, if, if any of you are trapped and you're not comfortable driving... Um, there are a number of people that are here that are comfortable driving in the snow. That can be good or scary, but there's a number of people that are, and I'm, I give you my word, they'll be on their best behavior. We'd be happy to give rides home if the roads are bad. So um, I'll tell you what, see, you'll see Mike Shabo in the back. Um, if, 
and, and he'll make sure to arrange that, our head usher, he'll arrange that ride for you. But um, let's close in, in prayer, and, uh, and then we'll close with a song. Lord, I thank you for, um, I thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, the opportunity to be reminded how easy it is to drift from, from uh, the truth. Uh, I pray for anyone in here that prayed earlier to, to walk and to receive you, that you would, um, you would protect them and um, draw other believers around them to bring them strength and support. And I pray for all of us as we, as we head out today that you would give us safety in our travels. And, um, Lord, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for the love that you have for us, the joy that there is in following you. We pray for, we pray for our neighbors that are here. Um, pray that you would give us wisdom in our dealings and compassionate hearts and that they would see Jesus through us. We love you so much, and we pray this in your name. Amen.